G'day and welcome everyone to episode number one of On The Step with That Mallard Guy. I'm your host, Dan Bolton. I am so excited to bring this podcast to you all. On The Step is going to be the ultimate one-stop podcast for all things float planes and flying boats. It's my mission to interview people within our industry to get you the most interesting, amazing and relevant stories. So if you're aspiring to get into float planes, if you're an experienced float pilot, or even if you're just an aviation enthusiast who loves a good yarn, then get comfortable because this is the podcast for you. Now before we get going, if you think you know someone who would be great to get on this show, get in contact with me via email, thatmallardguy at hotmail.com, or on my Instagram page, send me a direct message at that mallard guy also if you love the show and want to hear more stories from float plane and flying boat pilots around the world make sure you give me a five-star review on the platform you're listening on right now so i know you're loving the show and i'll do my best to keep up the hard work now i've reserved the first episode to talk all things mallards the love for the aircraft i've seen through my instagram page has shown how popular they really are But before we dive deep into the history, we're going to get into a little segment I like to call the Seaplane Spotlight. Okay folks, so the Seaplane Spotlight is going to be a weekly feature where I'm going to shine the spotlight on a seaplane operator anywhere around the world. Now to be featured for this free shout out of your business, just send me a message on the links I mentioned earlier and just give me a bit of details about your company. Now, this week's Seaplane Spotlight, considering it's the first podcast I've actually put out and I haven't given you the chance to send in your details to be featured, I thought, why not do my company, Paspaley Aviation? Let's put them under the Seaplane Spotlight. All right, so what do they operate? Well, unless you've been living under a rock, we have three turbine mallard flying boats and we're going to talk a lot about them in the show just to come. Where are we based? Well, we're based up in Darwin, NT, Australia, the top of Australia, some of the harshest, most remote areas in the continent. Now, what's our main operation type? Well, we mainly do pearling operations, helping out pearl farms in the Kimberley. But we're also going down the Charter Avenue now, and we're doing fishing charters, coastal camp charters, and also safaris through the whole Kimberley. We've even done uh, school teacher runs and... Uh, scenic flights off cruise ships. How many pilots do we employ? We've currently got six full-time employed pilots and one other contract pilot based in New South Wales who's one of the only uh, type-rated trainers in Australia. Do we offer any uh, seaplane training? Uh, Unfortunately not, only all the training that we do is in-house once employed at the company. All right, so there we have it folks. We've just shone the spotlight on Paspaley Aviation. And like I said, to be featured in this quick little segment at the start of my podcast for next time, just get in contact with me and uh, we can shine the seaplane spotlight on your business. Okay, now it's time for the main act. To talk mallards with me on the first episode, I couldn't go past the chief pilot of the only commercial mallard operation in the world, Mr. Andrew Lawler. He's my boss. Now to help introduce him, 
and big note him before I can get him on because he absolutely hates being a hero. I'm going to list some of the amazing aircraft that he's flying. DC-3, both piston and turbine. That's pretty cool. DC-4, that's pretty cool. Beach 1900s, Brazilias, ATRs, Albatrosses, Goose, the list goes on. And he's flown some amazing places around the world, including Iraq, Bahrain, Afghanistan, Mozambique, the Congo, South Africa, New Zealand, USA, Ivory Coast, and now Australia. Now, unfortunately, we're not going to be diving into his story, but he has a wealth of knowledge and he loves to talk all things Mallard. It's now time, folks. Let's climb aboard. Watch your step. It's a bit slippery. Let's pick up the anchor, stow the paddle, and get going on the step. Right engine is turning. 12% fuel. A light. Okay, welcome Andrew Lawler to the show. How are you going, mate? Very good, very good. Thanks for this, Dan. Much appreciated. No worries. Thank you. I mean, you are the the first on the show. You're the first cab off the rank for On The Step with that Mallard guy. You must feel either special or maybe a little bit hard done by. Mm, yes, it's a bit, a bit difficult trying to figure out which one of the two. <laughs> no, it's definitely special, definitely special. Um, I've given you a fair rap in the introduction, mate, so there's no need to talk yourself up too much. I know that's not what you're about. Um, but before we uh, jump into our topic today, which is going to be all about the Grumman Mallard, um, I've mentioned it before, uh, the following on Instagram from everyone uh, on my Instagram page at that Mallard guy has just been really nuts and a bit hard to believe really. So when I thought about doing this podcast, I thought, what better way to introduce Seaplanes and Flying Boat, our podcast, uh, than to talk all about the Grumman Mallard to start off with. So um, we're going to get to that in just a moment, but I'd like to start off with a little bit of uh, the background in the float world that you've had. So um, it's quite funny, isn't it? Because uh, the Mallard was your first uh, seaplane job. Isn't that a bit crazy? That, that is. Yeah, I'm very, very out of the ordinary as far as the, the seaplane pilots go. I, I ended up being a, um, a heavy-duty commercial driver uh, with a big thrill and interest there in seaplanes. And, of course, I own my own buccaneer while I was living there in Canada. Um, so, basically, seaplanes have been something that I've been interested in right from uh, right from the get-go. I can remember when I was very, very young, probably about uh, eight or nine years old, uh, going flying in a CB Air Grumman Widgeon there in Auckland, New Zealand, oh, wow. back, back in the day. Um, and my business partner and myself, we were looking at projects that we could use the uh, the Grumman Albatross on since the middle of the 1990s. So big, big interest, but um, wasn't actually involved in the hands-on flying of seaplanes until quite late in the day. When was the first time you actually were able to get in a seaplane and, and go water flying? That would have been in 1993. Um, I started working in Canada doing geosurvey and, of course, the first thing that anybody as a pilot does when they go to Canada is get their hands on float flying. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, what aircraft was that one? That was in just a Cessna 172 uh, float plane just out of Toronto there in Aurelia. 
Um, so I got myself in, endorsed on type there and um, managed to work myself uh, while I was there working in Canada, popped up and down and picked up a few type ratings and got myself trained up on a, a few a few of the different uh, seaplane aircraft. And luckily enough, I was able to do my initial multi-engined uh, twin seaplane in a Grumman Albatross itself. So that was the what was to be the, the first part of our commercial uh, enterprise working on Grumman Albatrosses, but that all fell apart there in the in the late uh, 1990s, but managed to work my way through to be able to get involved with the uh, Mallards there for Pass Bailey, seeing as how that is the pinnacle of seaplane flying anywhere now. Yeah, it absolutely is. And now you talked about getting your initial twin-engine seaplane rating on an Albatross. That would have been... Um Pretty crazy for most people, but I guess with your background, that uh, you'd probably be used to an aircraft that size. Absolutely. I mean, it's basically like uh, like just another DC-3 uh, on the water. So, I mean, I'm used to aircraft of that size, used to radial engines there of that size, used to the, the multi-crew operation side of things. So, yeah, it, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a big psychological step up there onto the aircraft. Now, you mentioned as well... Uh, you've got well. You're obviously on the uh, Mallard at the moment, but you've got a couple of other Grumman um, multi-engine type seaplane ratings as well. Yes, yeah, so I, I, luckily enough, um, I got myself rated on the uh, Grumman Goose, and that was done there through in Seattle, uh, and that was actually on the aircraft that was used for the uh, Tales of the Gold Monkey. So before she was uh, crashed, as she she was in the, in the late 90s, I managed to get myself signed out on that particular aircraft. I'll have to look that one up. And did you do a bit of widgeon flying as well? Yes, down in, down in Florida, a, G, a G44, not an A model, just one of the original G44s. Uh, nice, very nice machine. Yeah, that sounds like fun, flying uh, almost all the uh, Grumman aircraft. Uh, just the duck left, I guess, for be one that cool a Grumman plane that yes but don't quite know whether that that quite uh, fits into the the same category as the the widgeon goose albatross group yeah maybe not um so mate we've got you on the on the show today uh for the first episode to talk all about mallards um Everyone who has flown the Mallard absolutely falls in love with it, don't they? Absolutely. Yeah, they're just an absolute incredible aeroplane to fly. I remember the first time I got to um, see a Mallard was I was ferrying a, a caravan across Australia um, from the Whitsundays back to Kununurra and I got to come through Darwin on, on my way home and I caught up with a mate there who was flying at the time at Paspaley and uh, got to go for a quick run on the Mallard. Unfortunately, it wasn't on the water, but we went to a, a little grass strip about uh, 50 miles away or something, Channel Point. Um, yes. And I must say, I remember, I remember kind of um, sitting back going, oh, I don't know about this, like uh, multi-crew. I was happy in a single pilot operation back then and... But when the job came up and I took it, I was, um, you know, very excited and, and since actually being on the mallard it's just a whole you know a love and a passion for the mallard has just grown so quickly um yeah it's just one of those airplanes that you just fall in love with straight away once you get inside it absolutely dan and that that's one thing that everybody that's been involved with pass bailey is caught up with that as well we consider ourselves to be so lucky 
to be actually operating these these aircraft, doing what it was that they were designed to do in the, the late 1940s, and looking forward and seeing that there is nothing to replace them. We, no. we are the, the guardians, the, the custodians of these fantastic pieces of equipment that are still doing today what they were designed for 75 years ago, and they're still going to keep going there into the future. There's nothing that um, does the job that a mallard can do. They're, they're amazing machines, and we're just so lucky to be involved in keeping that alive. Exactly, and uh, we're going to talk obviously all about um, why they're still operating later on in the show as well. But let's let's step back a little bit now and, and get right into the roots of, of the Mallard. I mean, I know that back in 1947, there was only 59 ever built. But talk to us a little bit about what they were actually used for back in the day, in the, in the late 50s, just after World War II. Well, the, the aircraft was actually designed as World War II was just coming to a, coming to a conclusion. Grumman was just uh, designing and building the Pelican, which became the Albatross. And they looked at this aircraft and they thought, you know, we're coming to the end of the Second World War. Civil aviation is going to start bouncing back again. We need an aircraft that's going to be replacing the venerable Grumman Goose. So they looked at the Albatross and they scaled it down to about a two-thirds model and decided this would be the Mallard. And if you have a look at photos of an Albatross and a Mallard, unless you're an airplane spotter, it's very, very difficult to tell which is which. They look almost exactly the same because they are basically exactly the same design but scaled down in the, in the Mallard. Exactly. I saw a, a photo of you standing next to the Albatross that you did your typewriting on and, my God, it's a bloody big aeroplane. Absolutely. But the, the Mallards, Grumman looked at the way that the uh, civil aviation industry was going to be and they thought that there was going to be a need for a light commuter type aircraft equivalent to what we have today in a uh, Beach King Air to operate into the cities and to be able to go into places like New York and land at the waterfront there and deliver businessmen to Wall Street straight off the aircraft. Um, in this day and age, you know, we think about helicopters doing that, but in the, the late 1940s, the, hel the helicopter was still embryonic technology and the thinking was using the seaplane to do exactly that. So Grumman thought that they would set themselves up with this design for an aircraft that was able to be a light airliner, you know, to be able to take 10 passengers and to be able to do city to city to drop off in downtown. Yeah, that would have been crazy. Imagine going to work at Wall Street, getting dropped off in the Mallard down on the water there. It would have been epic. And now there's uh, there's seaplane companies in New York flying around uh, in Cessna caravans doing um, probably the same job now. So um, Absolutely. Shows there was probably a need for that back in the day. Just unfortunate that all of the aviation uh, manufacturers were all expecting this big boom in aviation come 1946. But unfortunately, with all the war surplus DC-3s and PBYs, there just wasn't the market for these brand new airplanes. So unfortunately, Grumman was only able to manufacture 59 of the Mallards because there just wasn't enough of a market demand for them at that time. Now, there was only 59 ever built. Do you know how many are actually flying around today? Well, that's a bit of a bit of a tricky, tricky number. Um, 
everybody's quite certain about the number of aircraft that have been crashed. But when it comes to aircraft that have been damaged and destroyed and withdrawn from use, there are still quite a few airframes that are sitting in the equivalent of barns with the wings off that could potentially be brought back online and to be made flyable again. Nobody's really too sure. There's probably about 10 to 12 aircraft that are either flying right now or could be fairly easily made flyable. Yeah, only 10 left in the world. That's pretty crazy numbers. And to think that Paspaley's got three of them which makes it a really um, crazy number. Oh, a- absolutely. And Paspaley are probably the only people that are able to be operating these aircraft commercially uh, in this day and age that's uh, still left. One of the biggest commercial operators of the Mallard, and especially the turbine Mallard, we see that so famously uh, over in Miami in uh, Chalks there. They they were a huge operator of the Mallard. They, they were, absolutely. Chalks used to tout themselves as being one of the oldest running airlines in the world. They were off from back in the American Prohibition days. So they, they were actually a, ma- a major airline in that United States across to the, the Bahamas sectors there. They, they, were a, they were a very big operator and the, the Mallards were a very large part of their business. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that made the Mallard unique as an aircraft. You know, things like the nose bay, for example. Yes, the, the, the Mallard is a, a wonderful aircraft, very large nose to it, and it's a very large empty area. So it's designed to be able to be a large baggage locker there in the front of the aircraft, still with the ability that uh, one of the crewmen can go forward there into that nose area, open the nose hatch while you're on the water and be able to pick up mooring lines and tie the aircraft up while the other pilot remains there in the cockpit operating the aircraft. Yeah, I know we've all experienced it at Pass Bailey, doing that job going up into the nose bay to uh, access a mooring and whatnot, and it's it's a real thrill, isn't it, getting in for the first time especially, popping open that hatch and uh, poking your head out and seeing the, the roaring of those PD-6s um, right in front of your face, really. It lends itself to that Titanic leaning across the bow there. there yeah, exactly. It, 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 it is very, very spectacular. And the, the number of photos that um, crews have been able to take from going there into the nose bay and even just looking back there at the aircraft, it's, it's a very, very unusual view to have. Another cool thing about the Mallard that most people won't think about, you know, you get your float plane pilots who, after a day's flying, uh, will have that terrible job of pumping the floats. And I've known a few uh, operators that have had some pretty bad floats to pump out. Uh, but we don't have to do that, obviously. We, we still leak, but uh, we have another way of getting uh, water out of the hull. Absolutely, and that, that's... That's one of the modifications that's gone into the turbine mallards that we operate is we've got electric boost, uh, sorry, electric bilge pumps underneath the floor in the aircraft. In fact, we've got three of them that automatically pump water out of those bilges once they detect water. The original mallard was exactly the same as your 172 on floats. It had a manual piston system to have the co-pilot pulling and sucking to move water there out of the bilges. But uh, we've got fitted in our aircraft these electrical pumps that do the job automatically for us. Exactly. And then not only that, after those uh, bilge pumps have done their job, at the end of the day, if there's any leftover water, we can actually pull out the bungs um, that are in the, the bottom of the mallard there. We've got eight bung holes, just like a normal boat. You know, Make sure you put all those in before you go flying, that's for sure. 
Absolutely. And that, that, no, that's one of the things that your amphibious flying boat uh, excels at, because at the end of every day, your aircraft is able to be brought out of the water there and sit on dry land, and you're able to pull those bungs out that are there at all of the low points and allow any dregs of water there to drain out. Yeah, and, and another cool thing about the Mallard as well, just about that uniqueness, is the fabric flight control. So, and we still use them today, don't we? We've got our ailerons, elevator and rudder all still fabric. That, that was the design philosophy that was still quite prevalent there up until the, the 1950s, to have the fabric flight control surfaces rather than have those surfaces metalised. Um, it, it means that they're that much lighter there on the aircraft and uh, back in the day almost every qualified engineer was also a qualified fabric man these days it's a a bit more of a specialist skill but um, you know from the time that the aircraft was designed it was you know absolutely normal to to have those surfaces there as fabric yeah and that's something that uh, pilots these days wouldn't realize about the mallard probably wouldn't realize a lot about airplanes in general they go through their flight training on the 172s or whatever they're doing for commercial training and then they don't really ever get exposed to um fabric and you know all of a sudden they're stepping up onto a mallard and and there they are you know it's not just the pilots it's the engineers as well the vast majority of engineers that come through engineering training these days have never handled canvas they've never handled a needle before they just don't know because it's not standard for most aircraft these days specialist stuff now yeah, very cool. There's uh, there's a lot of stuff about the Mallard we could uh, we could talk about being so unique. But uh, let's let's talk about how Paspaley came to own these aircraft now, and when did they get to Australia, and and how did we end up purchasing them? Well, the the Mallards, all three of them that Paspaley owns, were originally owned back in the Whitsunday Islands. There, so originally the Mallards were all brought across there from Canada and started operating for tourist operations there across onto the Great Barrier Reef. This was in the the early to mid-1980s. The world was going good, the economy was fantastic, and people were flocking in droves to the uh, Great Barrier Reef. And what better aircraft to get people out onto the the Barrier Reef than a uh, two-engine seaplane? absolutely fantastic for the job so these three aircraft were running very very successfully there initially for the tourist runs on the great barrier reef yeah and uh, i know uh, you and i actually we had the special flight uh, last year to the rathmines um, catalina festival we took the mallard on that uh, four-day safari and we'll talk a little bit about safaris later in the show but we almost got to bring the aeroplane back to its uh, its original place in Australia, which is the Whit Sundays and where it operated. And I know for myself, as I was uh, working in that area a few years prior, it was a real cool experience to have the Mallard back on Whitehaven Beach, where it had flown over thirty years before. Absolutely, and to to meet the old timers who knew of the aircraft back from in those days. It was very very much a homecoming there for those machines to actually get back to where they cut their teeth here in Australia. It was a great experience to, to be able to share that with the people over there. So they flew in the, uh, in the Whitsundays, and, and, and how did um, Paspaley come to, to owning them? Why did they want the Mallard? Well, Paspaley's operations with the, uh, the pearl farms, of course, pearl farms are serviced from vessels in the middle of nowhere. 
perfect place to have a pearl farm is where there are no people. So there is no pollution, the water is absolutely pristine, and there's no disturbance there for all the little oysters as they grow. The unfortunate thing about trying to find a location like that means it's very, very remote. So Pass Bailey, with its pearl uh, operations there out in the, in the remote Kimberleys, needed a method of being able to move people backwards and forwards there to the farms and to be able to supply the uh, foods to keep those people there uh, fed while they were out there working there on the farms and to bring the supplies out. And looking at all the different options, an aircraft like the, the Mallard was reckoned to be the absolutely ideal machine to do the job. It was an aircraft that was able to fly that distance and come back again easily within a day to get everything uh, completed at a reasonable time, to be able to have the all-weather capability to be able to operate come rain, come shine. So um, Pass Bailey looked at this and they decided getting involved in mallards was the way to go to surface their farms. Now let's talk about the, so they've got three mallards. Um, what serial numbers are those ones out of the production line? Well, we've got uh, J22, J23 and J26. So well, when Grumman made the aircraft, they uh, prefixed all of their serial numbers with the letter J for mallard. And then as they came off the production line, they were numbered sequentially. So we have the uh, 22nd, the 23rd and the 26th aircraft produced. And taking a step back, there's a couple of famous owners, isn't there? Um, for those, uh, I think it was 22 and 23, which was uh, India and Echo. We had one, uh, Christian Dior, who was uh, an owner back in uh, the 50s. And then yes. also uh, one was used uh, and, and named Miss Daily News for the New York Daily News. And it actually and had a window modification, on, didn't it? Yep, that, that's, that's correct. So one of the aircraft came off the production line to be uh, an aircraft there for the, the daily news there in New York. Um, so she had extended cockpit windows there to allow the, the pilots to be able to take photos from the air if needed. Um, and this aircraft was actually uh, involved there in the news reporting for the sinking of the uh, Andrea Doria, an ocean liner, which uh, sank off the coast of the, the United States there in the early 50s. Um, and, of course, you, you mentioned there Christian Dior. So one of the Mallards was also based in Paris in very early there in its life in the early 1950s, and it was the, the official company aircraft there of Christian Dior. There's the, the potential that the aircraft was also owned by the, the Barter Shoe Company as well immediately after Christian Dior, but the, the records there from those uh, 1950s are a little bit uh, a little bit sparse after this length of time, so we can't be 100% sure on that. Exactly like 70 years, there's obviously going to be some interesting uh, stories to tell over such a long time. Ab absolutely, but uh, you know, with, with paperwork from, from that, that length of time, there's also lots of very big holes in it, unfortunately. Um, now, when the aircraft got to Pass Paley, what were the engine um, setups for the three aeroplanes? Because we know that there were some turbine um, conversions done, um, obviously by Frakes over in the States. So what did Pass Paley actually purchase engine-wise? Yeah, so, so you just mentioned there Frakes. Frakes got into converting some of the, the mallards there into turbine engines there starting in the, the early 1970s and the, the Mallard was one of the first aircraft that was actually um, 
refitted there with the new generation, new technology PT-6 engines. So by the time the aircraft came there to Pass Bailey, one of them had already been uh, converted there at Frakes. So uh, the aircraft that is uh, PPT now was already a Frakes turbine mallard. The other two aircraft were the original um, radial engine mallards with the, the Pratt & Whitney R1340 engines. It's pretty crazy to think, you know, the PD-6 has been a, a really dependable engine for over 50 years now. It's crazy to think that the Mallard, which has PD-6s on it now, was made and developed 20 years before the PD-6 was developed itself. One of the, the, the strange things about the history there of the Mallard is it was actually designed for 700 horsepower engines, but when Grumman went looking for the engine manufacturers to provide them with a 700-horsepower radial engine, there was no such animal. They, they hadn't been built. So unfortunately, they had to step down to the uh, R1340 engine, which was a 600-horsepower engine, which was you know, considerably lower horsepower than the, in, than the aircraft was actually designed for. And it had to wait until the late 1960s, early 1970s, when Pratt & Whitney was able to develop a model of the PT-6 engine that was close to that 700 horsepower, that the aircraft could actually get the uh, type of engines that it was actually designed for. Yeah, and that current engine, the PT-6-34, that we have uh, in our aircraft and that the Frakes aircraft has as well, uh, we'll talk a little bit about um, why I talk about those two in different terms, but... Uh, it's a 750 horsepower rated engine. It's derated to 680 because of single engine performance and, and the use of the air rudder. Um, yeah. The rudder's not powerful enough to overcome that power. But back when Paspaley got them, they had one uh, PD-6, the Frakes converted Mallard, and two pistons. Uh, so how did it turn out that Paspaley now have three turbines? Did they, did they not like the radials? Well, unfortunately... Pass Bailey started having some very, very bad luck with the, the radial engines that they had. And the reliability on those engines was nowhere near what was needed. I mean, when, when you think about what it is that Pass Bailey was doing, the aircraft were going on almost a two-hour flight out into the middle of nowhere to drop pearlers off at the pearl farm and then to fly back across the open ocean for another two hours to get back home there to Darwin. So it was a long distance there, and with the engines starting to become unreliable and starting to have more and more maintenance issues, Pass Bailey looked at this and they decided that it just wasn't worth the risk that they were having there to their business with these aircraft potentially turning around, coming back, having to have engine changes, having to have major work done on the engines just on typical flights. And meanwhile, they had one PT-6-engined aircraft that was being dispatched every single day with no hassles and no issues. So Pass Bailey taking the long-term view, knowing that the Mallard was the aircraft to do the job, they looked at this and they said, we will just have to invest the money and we will have to re-engine the two aircraft into these new, newer technology turbine engines with the attendant increased serviceability and reliability of those machines. Yeah, it would have been great to be a pilot flying around those uh, pistons back in the day, but like you said, with the unreliability, it was just a no-brainer to get turbines fitted out. Now, what was the process to go and uh, change over a piston engine mallard to a turbine? 
It is a lot of work. It's not just a simple case of bolting one engine off and bolting a new engine on and, and off you go. Um, there was already a turbine engine conversion there in America, the uh, Frakes STC. Pass Bailey made inquiries there to Frakes about re-engining work on the two-piston aircraft that we had, and that was eventually decided that that wouldn't really be uh, too economical. So Pass Bailey decided that they would embark on developing their own proprietary turbine engine conversion. And one of the great things about doing it yourself is you can also add on a few things to make it the aircraft that you want it to be for your operation. Absolutely. So, you know, we, we have been working on these aircraft now for close on 25 years, and it's just been a, a slow process of customising the aircraft to get them to be exactly what it is that we want, not what somebody else wants to give you. Yeah, so talk to us about um, what happened to the first piston aircraft that went away and got changed over to a turbine. Yeah, so the work was all done down in Perth, and it was a very, very long process. So the aircraft were, were brought offline, and it was two years before the aircraft started a test flying program. So the, the aircraft was basically stripped down to nothing and completely rebuilt. As it was, it was in 1995, so the aircraft had been manufactured in 1947. So the aircraft was pretty venerable uh, when it went in for the, the turbine conversion work to start. So the aircraft was basically stripped back to nothing. Um, all the, the bodywork and the panels were all replaced and any corrosion there was removed. And then almost every single system there on the aircraft was uh, removed in its 1947 state and re-engineered and reworked into what was required for an aircraft of the 1990s. So the electrical system, all completely new. The fuel system, all taken out and completely rebuilt. Hydraulic system, also completely rebuilt. So, so massive re-engineering work went on on the interior of the aircraft. And then there was looking at the aerodynamics there of the machine. Aerodynamics that were acceptable for certification in 1947 weren't quite up to the standard that was expected for a commuter category aircraft of the 1990s. So the uh, Paspali aircraft went through a really significant test flying program, which led to a whole lot of minor modifications that you can see on the, the outside of a Paspali Mallard that are completely unique to our design. Yeah, and we're going to go through those in a second as well. Uh, you talk about performance certifications. Now, the AT, or so we're talking about now the AT Mallard, which is the Australian yeah. turbine Mallard. So for those of you who don't know, the uh, the original piston Mallard was designated G-73, and then the Frakes Mallard had the T on the end, and then we have the AT for Australian turbine. Now, it had a gross weight increase as well, didn't it? Up to 63.50 kilograms. And, and with that comes meeting some new performance certifications um, for twin-engine aeroplanes. Yeah, so, so the aircraft now can take off at that 63.50 kilograms, which is 14,000 pounds. So it, it, it puts it uh, in the, the medium type of aircraft category now. So the aircraft certification rules that the Mallard flies by now are basically the same certification rules that your 737 
operates by. So we can have an engine failure or a major problem while we're in the middle of taking off and the aircraft is still able to accelerate to take off speed and climb up to a safe altitude, which then allows the pilots to analyse the problem, deal with it, and um, allows the aircraft to come back in and return there for a landing. So, so the aircraft performance now is exactly the same as what you'd expect on a 737. Yeah, that's it's a really um, reassuring thing as well as a pilot, isn't it? To have that safety behind us, even when flying such an old aircraft and, and being still in a float plane. And it might be a 1947 original design, but it still performs in exactly the same manner as a brand new aircraft that comes off the production line tomorrow. Now, we'll go into a few other little things. I'd like to kind of talk a little bit about the aircraft weight. So I mentioned there that the uh, the takeoff weight 6350 kilograms now, 14,000 pounds. Um, we've got a, a landing weight limitation, 6,123 kilograms. And then we've also got a uh, zero fuel weight limit, um, which is around about 5,443 kilograms. What's the deal there with the, the zero fuel weight limit and, and how does that tie in with our fuel layout and our fuel system? Well, one, one of the things that they, they went through when they were having a look at all the uh, very sophisticated modelling there for the, the aerodynamics here of the aircraft was looking at wing bending stress moments. So the uh, design engineers used computers there to model how the wing bends and flexes there in flight. And depending on um, where the fuel is loaded there into the wings, how that affects how the wing bends and stresses. So the, um, they, they've come up with the, uh, the idea that the, the aircraft can have a maximum zero fuel weight for the AT Mallard of uh, 5443 kilograms. And that's determined then that that's the maximum weight that we can have for the aircraft and the payload. Uh, in the aircraft there and still allow the wings to be able to bend in the, the maximum amount to still keep that life there on the airframe. And then uh, with our fuel uh, layout as well, so the changes to the AT Mallard include um, some extra fuel tanks in the wings and also in the floats? Yeah, absolutely. The, the original Mallard came out with a, a fuel tank uh, in each wing between the engine there and the fuselage and that was it for the standard fuel. There was an option to have a fuel tank there in the floats and some mallards came, came from the factory there with that additional fuel tank there in the floats. But uh, when it came to designing the AT, of course the, the turbine engine uses uh, more fuel than the piston engine. So the aircraft designers looked at increasing the total fuel capacity there of the, the AT mallards. So for all of the AT mallards, they are fitted with the the extra fuel tanks there in the floats. And we've also got a custom designed uh, wing auxiliary fuel tank as well, just outboard of the main engines. So the, the uh, AT Mallard now has three fuel tanks on each side. Yeah, one thing I love about this aeroplane in regards to its fuel system, it ties a little bit back down to that zero fuel weight. So we can have uh, a full payload of passengers and freight, which equates to around about 12 100 kilos so over yep. a ton of payload but because of that zero fuel weight limit we can take that up to max takeoff weight and have around about three hours of flying fuel on board it makes it really good for doing those long distance flights absolutely so yeah so with the, the zero fuel weight restriction that that we have on the aircraft we are 
always able to carry that three and a half hours worth of of fuel there on the aircraft. So, you know, in in geographical terms here for us here in Australia, the uh, the AT Mallard will always be able to fly from Sydney to Launceston there in Tasmania, even with a maximum fuel load. And if you like, try and uh, think of that in American terms, that's Miami to Wilmington Beach in the Carolinas. Or if you were in Europe, it's basically London to Marseille. So the aircraft will always be able to fly those sort of distances, carrying that 1.2 tonnes. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why the Mallard is still around operating today, isn't it? It's, it's why the Twin Otter, for example, hasn't come in and taken over the work that the Mallard has done. Absolutely. We, we have with this aircraft endurance and payload. And speed. <laughs> and, and yes, and yes, of course, and the, the, the speed that the aircraft's got there as well. It's not going to take you all day to get somewhere, have to sleep there, and then spend all the next day to come home. Exactly. So even though we're unpressurized, we're not getting up to those flight levels. We're still doing about 180 knots, Taz, which is really good for an aircraft that then can fly and land on the water at the other end. Absolutely. That that 180 knots works out to close to 350 kilometers an hour. That's a that's a reasonable speed for an unpressurized aircraft. And when you factor in the the ability for us to land there on the water. There's no other equivalent seaplane that's going to have those sort of speeds and that sort of payload. Now, I talked a little bit before about uh, our designator being the AT, the Australian turbine. Obviously, the big thing is that we've converted these mallards to turbines, the same engine that that Frakes did um, back in the 70s there. But let's let's go into a bit more detail about what other differences we have on the AT mallard versus um, the Frakes turbine mallard. Why don't we start off with uh, around the engines and the cows? The first thing that anybody's going to be able to spot when they look at a photo of the Frakes mallard versus a photo of the AT mallard is our engine cowlings are completely different. So the original Frakes cowlings there were just bolt-on cowlings where they replaced the uh, the radial engines with the, the turbine engines. So there's no modification of any significance to the back end of the, the cowlings there. Now, with the, with the AT modification, as they were looking at the aerodynamics of the aircraft, our engineers discovered there was quite a bit of turbulence uh, generated there behind those nacelles. So with the AT Mallard, we have quite a large fairing that now runs from the, the back of the engines out past and over the flaps to behind the behind the engines there. It looks like it's a, a wonderful baggage bay area there for the aircraft, but it isn't at all. It's just purely an aerodynamic fitting that's there on the on the back of those engine nacelles. And with that comes uh, a bit of uh, use for the aircraft transfer or aircraft tenders that we use to get the passengers on and off the aeroplane with a nice little handhold there at the back of the left end. Absolutely. It worked out absolutely perfectly there for uh, using aircraft tenders to dock up against the aircraft. You also have a look at the uh, the engine cowlings. If you have a look underneath the cowlings as well, the uh, Frakes aircraft have an oil cooler that sits underneath the, the engine cowling there which requires a large separate inlet and outlet. So that ends up with uh, quite a large draggy structure there that's sitting on the the bottom of the nacelles. 
with the, the ATs, we uh, have embedded that oil cooler inside the nacelle structure and there's a flush-mounted NACA inlet which allows um, ambient air to come through and cool the oil. So it looks a lot more sleeker and leaner, the cowling there for the AT versus what's on the original Frakes turbine conversion. Yeah, now also the uh, the wings didn't escape the engineers' uh, aerodynamic testing either, did they? Not at all. There's, there's, there's quite a few quite neat little features that, uh, that we've got there with the, the AT Mallard. First one that's a little bit difficult to see unless you're right up next to the aircraft is modifications that have been made to the wingtip and the uh, tip there of the ailerons. So with the, the AT aircraft, we've got a little bit of a droop that's there on the wingtips. Um, not quite a winglet type structure, but uh, performs the same sort of basic task to, to reduce the uh, wingtip vortices there that uh, are generated there at the end there of the wingtip. Um, also got another couple of neat little features there on the wings, on the leading edge of the wing, we uh, have a stall strip that's there on the leading edge of the wing to actually induce the stall to start early, just outboard there of the engines to, to start the, the stall there rather than to have the stall starting at some random place uh, along the, the wing leading edge as we get close to the stall. And the idea behind that is to make sure that we have aileron control at really low speed? Uh, yes, and to, to allow the aircraft to have a controlled stall rather than, shall we say, more of an uncontrolled stall with one wing stalling earlier than the other with that attendant wing drop and potential for spiral dive to develop there out of that. And what, what other things? I know on top of the aircraft there's some modifications as well. Yes, and to assist the way that the air flows there on top of the wing, we have on the, uh, on the main wings, we have a whole lot of little vortex generators which are there along the leading there edge there of the wing. And we also find that they're on the tail of the aircraft there as well. So just before the uh, rudder there on both sides of the tail surface, we've got those little vortex generators and also on the elevators there as well. So they just assist in the, the airflow there uh, as we get to those high angles of attack, just to try and keep the aircraft more controllable um, as it approaches the, the, the stall regime. It's interesting you talk about the vortex generators on the tail. On the uh, on the rudder, they're only on one side. What, what's uh, the deal that, with that? That's all to do with the whole asymmetric torque effect there. As you've got your uh, propellers there spinning, they tend to uh, provide more thrust on the one side of the propeller disc than the other, the whole downgoing blade and upgoing blade there effect. So effectively, you, you end up with more um, airflow over one side of the rudder than you do there with the other. And then you factor in the potential of single engine operations where you've only got one engine that's running and that engine's running at maximum power. We need to just try and level out the two sides of the equation there and they just try and uh, work it so that the uh, the airflow over the tail there works better there and with that asymmetric power coming through. And while we're on the tail, uh, one of the most interesting uh, design changes that I can think of had to be the beacon light being moved. Is, that's just crazy. Absolutely. It's so the, the original aircraft came out of Grumman there with the rotating beacon on the very top of the tail. 
And funnily enough, the original Grumman albatrosses also came out with the beacon there uh, right at the top of the tail. But uh, while we were going through the uh, flight testing performance there for the, the Mallard, it was determined that the little fairing there, which had that uh, rotating beacon there at the top of the tail, was a significant uh, factor there for ad adjusting um, that airflow there over the tail. Now, Grumman had already actually discovered this many years earlier when they made the long-wing Grumman albatrosses. And they also moved the rotating beacon from the very top of the tail. However, they put it on a little fairing three-quarters of the way down the tail. So our engineers decided that they would instead put two rotating beacon lights, one on either side of the tail. So on each side, we have a, a separate rotating beacon light. Yeah, I think that's, that's just such a crazy thing to, to find that such a small item can cause such a drastic uh, aerodynamic change. Yeah, very, very significant. And the, the, the engineering documents that we have make um, it very, very certain that there is to be nothing fixed or attached to the aircraft there at the top of the tail because of the uh, amount of turbulence that fittings mounted there at the top create there to the tail itself. It's a, it's a very significant thing that wasn't noticed by the Grumman engineers in 1947, but that was picked up later and uh, we've worked through it for our aircraft. I'll have to try and get the GoPro EO to uh, go to the side of the tail then, hey? How's that sound? A much better idea. <laughs> um, now, the entrances and exits to the aircraft, including the little nose hatch there, there's some interesting changes to the AT regarding those. Absolutely, and this, this comes down to the fact that this is a custom aircraft there for Paspaley. So Paspaley have made sure that the aircraft is designed to do exactly what it is that we want. So with the uh, standard passenger exit here for a Mallard on the uh, left-hand side of the fuselage, it's a door that opens and it's hinged forward and it hinges forward to rest um, up against the side of the aircraft near to where the wing route is. Now, that's absolutely wonderful for a, for a typical aircraft. If the door comes open in flight, it doesn't go anywhere because it's hinges at the front. Now, Paspaley wanted to have the aircraft uh, serviced from small boats there out on the water so we decided that the, uh, the door for us would be better served by being hinged at the top. So the Mallard door uh, for the passengers now is hinged at the top and opens outwards and upwards. That also leaves the area um, between the uh, passenger door area and the wing route now free and available. And we've also got some grips and handholds that are mounted there to allow the crew to actually climb up onto the roof there through that passenger door when the aircraft is there on the water or on the ground. Yeah, that certainly helps as well. Obviously, being a flight crew on the aircraft, we've got to get up onto the top of the aeroplane quite regularly on a daily basis and check oils and, and dip the main tanks for fuel. Uh, yes, we have to still dip tanks. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a better way of doing that. And what about the nose hatch? The nose hatch has changed a little bit as well. Yes, well, the, the nose hatch was a, was a strange design. It, it's built there to be able to take bags and luggage, but the original Grumman design had the nose hatch pivoting inside. So you can't fill the, the, the nose bay there for a mallard and expect to be able to, to service it through that hatch. You've got to leave a large uh, area there open to allow that door to, to pivot in. Freight's reworked that nose door there for themselves because they were used to operating the aircraft 
there so that um, on the ground you could have service personnel come to the left-hand side of the aircraft and pass bags up and down. So they, they had the door pivoting uh, outwards but allowing the uh, door to be serviced um, there from the ground. Pass Bailey decided we wanted that door to be hinged there at the front and to rotate all the way forward. So our door now rotates forward and lies forward on the nose. So you can't open that door there in flight, but when you're down there on the water or on the ground, you're able to load that nose baggage bay all the way up to the top and then close the door there from the outside. And when you want to open it up there from the outside, that door pivots forward. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, going back to how we talked about we go through that um, nose bay there, we can't do any of those in-flight expendables um, <laughs> videos like uh, they did on that show with uh, the guy jumping out of the hatch of the Albatross midair. Oh. Yes, that would be fun, but unfortunately not. Um, now, the next thing we're going we're gonna to talk about, we're going to step inside the aeroplane now and talk a little bit about the cabin setup. The old Mallards, there's some beautiful photos of nice big couches and nice reclining chairs. Um, the AT Mallards aren't set out like that, are they? No. Well, the, the original aircraft in its 1947 design had uh, lateral benches there at the front and a lateral bench there at the very, very back. So passengers could uh, sit basically sideways on the aircraft with their backs to the to the fuselage walls. Uh, in this day and age, that type of seating arrangement is no longer approved. Passenger seats now must always be fore and aft to ensure that uh, people are braced in the event of sudden accelerations and decelerations. So the original Mallard was able to take to take ten people with some of those seats mounted laterally, but uh, in the, the commercial sphere of operations, most mallards have been changed from that 10-passenger interior to a 13-passenger interior, and the, the mallards have gone with that 13-passenger interior. And there was also a uh, toilet on board the aircraft as well, wasn't there? Absolutely. Right at the very back, opposite where the, the um, entrance door was, there was the, uh, the optional toilet seat. I don't really think uh, there are many aircraft operating now with that chemical toilet still sitting in the aircraft and still fully functional. Uh, next thing uh, we're going to go through, uh, through the middle of the aircraft there, through the wing root area, we have a fire extinguishing system on board the aircraft. Talk a little bit about that. Right. So one of the awkward things about the Mallard is you can see that whole wing spar section that runs through in the cabin there and uh, restricts the cabin into a bit of a pinch point there. Fortunately for the, uh, the AT Mallard, we're not taking that all as being waste space. Um, that's where we have our dual shot fire bottles mounted there. So we have two fire bottles there for the aircraft, which are able to deliver fire extinguishing agent to either one of the engines. So we've got two fire bottles and each one can be used on either engine. So we've got two shots of fire extinguishing for either engine. That's another great safety aspect that we love as flight crew, being able to have the ability to put out an engine fire in flight. Um, obviously, it's not going to do the job every time, but it's better than not having it, isn't it? Absolutely. And the way that the, the shutdown procedures work there on the engine, before you even get to fire those fire bottles, you have removed any combustion source there from the, from the engine. So when it comes time to fire the fire bottle, you're just 
putting out the residual fire that's still left. There should be no uh, excess fuel that's available there for that fire anyway. Now, moving up to the front, to the uh, to the cockpit where all the magic happens, um, one of the unique things about the Mallard with the fact that the co-pilot can go through that nose hatch means that the rudder pedals are set up different on both sides. Yes, well, from, from what I understand, when the, the Mallards originally came out of the factory, there was an option to have full rudder pedals and brakes for both pilots, which was a considered to be the airline interior. And the the other option was rudder and brakes for the captain only and just small adjustable rudder pedals only there for the co-pilot side to allow better access into that nose area. So the, the aircraft that, that we operate, the all of the AT Mallards, have that second option there. So it's still fully usable there in flight for the for the co-pilot but the pedals are set up there for easily pivoting out of the way to allow access there into that nose bay. And uh, let's go on to the avionics suite now. It's changed a lot over the years. I mean, it's changed since I came on that little quick flight that I was telling you about at the start over to Channel Point, which was only a, a couple of years before I started. Then all of a sudden the GPS setup had changed. So uh, there's been a lot of changes over the, over the years. But what have we got running now in the Mallard and how's it all work? All right, so at, at the moment, the installation here for the Mallards, we're, we're using the Garmin GTN navigators. We're running on a 750 and a 650, and both of those boxes are GPS units, also with the inbuilt nav radios and com radios. So they're, they're all in one units. And the 750s now are having the uh, radar display integrated there into those units there as well. So not only have we got this big moving map display there on the 750s to allow us to see where we're going, we've also got that weather radar information overlaid over the top as well. Yeah, that's super handy. And having two GPSs really helps in the IFR world as well because obviously IFR flying, we need you know those GPSs plus other instruments. We've got the VOR, we can conduct ILSs. Um, we just recently got rid of the um, ADF equipment. Yep, yep, absolutely. So, yeah, we, re- we remove the ADF equipment there now. So um, yeah, e- everything we do and everywhere we go here in Australia, GPS approaches, GNSS, they're all set up at almost every single airfield now in Australia. We've got the ILS and the VORs there as backup there on that. So um, the-, the aircraft has the ability for that full all-weather operations, which is something that's absolutely required for operating in northern Australia where we get the monsoons and the, the thunderstorm activity here all through the wet season. That's what makes the Mallard even even further unique, I believe. You know, we're operating a full multi-crew IFR setup on a 70-year-old flying boat. Just, it's just Sometimes it's, you just got to pinch yourself as to what you're actually doing. It It's really crazy. A- absolutely. The, the, the vast majority of seaplane pilots never get anywhere near IMC conditions. They never get anywhere near IFR. The vast majority of seaplane operations are beautiful, sunny day, VFR-type operations. Sure, we get to do that a lot of the year, but we also have to operate on days when the weather is pretty rubbish. So we've got to have the ability to do that. Exactly, and I can remember a few times, you know, being really tossed around in some pretty 
crappy wet season weather up here in Darwin and it's a full uh, IFR challenge and that's that's one of the great things we get to uh, appreciate as well. Now we talked about all the things that come with the Mallard. There's a couple of things that we would love as pilots uh, that are missing uh, in the terms of uh, air conditioning and autopilot. We don't have either of those and when we talk about uh, IFR flying, uh, some people are a bit blown away that, oh, you don't have an autopilot. Well, yeah, no, we don't. That's uh, two crew operation. We don't require one, uh, which makes it a little bit more interesting. But uh, those would certainly be a couple of uh, useful items uh, on the bucket list. Oh, ab- absolutely. And you know, every now and then we start discussing the potential there for the for the air conditioning. And I'd, I'd like to hope that one day in the not too far distant future we'll be able to find a, a nice uh, lightweight option that will be able to do that there for the aircraft. And as far as autopilot goes, you know, we we are people that are absolutely loving these aircraft and we actually enjoy the hands-on flying. So um, it's not something that we, we look at as a, as a disadvantage there for the aircraft. We actually get to appreciate what it is that we're doing and we actually get to be hands-on and enjoying our jobs. Exactly. And sometimes on those long sectors, you know, it's, it's good to be able to hand fly to keep yourself um, a little bit entertained, I guess, in a way. Uh, absolutely. There have been some horrendous accidents over the, the last few years where uh, very senior airline pilots have ended up stuck in a situation where they've needed to hand fly the aircraft and they haven't performed very well at all. That's not a situation that the uh, Mallard pilots are ever going to be in because our hand flying skills are very, very sharp because that's what we have to do every day. Now let's talk a little bit about the the actual use. We've gone over the aircraft um, in high detail there, but let's actually talk about the use of the aircraft for Paspaley Aviation. What what's the bread and butter? Well, the bread and butter is keeping our pearl farms supplied. So as I said, Paspaley have pearl farms that are here in the uh, the northern part here of Australia in some of the most absolutely pristine, untouched, most fantastic countryside in the, the whole country. And because there is no people, there is no roads, there is no infrastructure, there is absolutely nothing. So to keep the boats that work the pearl farms supplied, we've got to take in supplies here by aircraft and as the workers there on the Pearl Farms are rotated for their two weeks on and then their time off, we've got to take in the uh, additional people there to replace them and bring them back in again at the end of their tours. So we, we have the aircraft kept fairly busy, just busy flying these supply runs just to keep the Pearl Farms in operation. Yeah, and it's uh, like we spoke about before, they're the perfect aircraft for that operation. That's why they're still running today. Now, in the last few years, um, we've been looking into doing a lot more charter operations. Um, we've got some fishing charters that are available yep. um, into to private boats, uh, helping them out, and also some coastal camp charters. And we've even uh, we've even done a couple of school runs in the Mallard. It, well, you know, what uh, Pass Bailey's bread and butter is going to these absolutely pristine places is also the sort of places that people are going to want to pay very good money to go on fishing charters in to exclusive uh, fishing boats that spend a week there in these the rural and remote areas there, fishing waters that uh, nobody else has been in before. And, of course, the best way to get people into these spots is to fly them there in the flying boat. Otherwise, it's going to take them days and days to get to these places. 
and they're not really going to have any time for fishing. So um, we've got uh, a quite a good service that's running to a few there of the charter boats there. We will take their people in and allow them to be fishing there for a week and then we'll bring them out again. So they maximise the amount of time that they're there in these isolated spots and able to uh, appreciate and enjoy these isolated spots. Yeah, and like one of the coastal camps that we've been flying to lately in the Kimberley there, like previously to get to this location, it was a, an Air North flight on an Embraer jet from Darwin to Kununurra. Then you'd, uh, you could either drive probably about 12 hours to a certain point where they'll pick you up on a boat or you could get a, a fixed-wing aircraft into a nearby uh, aerodrome and then catch a helicopter into their camp, or you could get a, a seaplane from Kununurra. But with the option now of having a direct flight straight to their doorstep from Darwin uh, in just under two hours, it, that's completely changed their business, I know. Ab- absolutely, and, that, and that's where these people that are going for a week's worth of fishing so rather than spending a day and a half at the beginning and a day and a half at the end in travel to actually get to their little fishing spot, we can have them casting a line at 8 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. They end up maximising their time that they've got for their fishing safari. It's just really opened up the world. And uh, you know, I know as a company we're really excited about the potential for the Mallard charter work and... Uh, we're really looking forward to what's to come in the future. Unfortunately, with what's going on at the moment with the COVID, it's put a bit of a handbrake on it, but I'm sure we'll bounce back and um, we'll be doing some charter work very soon. Um, and one of the other big charters that we're looking at doing into the future is uh, the safari. Now, I talked a little bit about the safari that we did down to Rathmines last year. It was a bit longer than what we'd like because it's you know covering a fair distance of Australia, but um, We've designed a really cool uh, safari package that goes through the Kimberley for four nights. Yeah, absolutely. As I said, this this is the most beautiful, pristine part there of Australia. It's absolutely fantastic countryside. And it's really, really exciting that we can share the fantastic area that we work in with other people. It is just so spectacular. I'm really, really looking forward to the um, safaris there kicking off again once the current crisis is over. Yeah, exactly, myself included. Um, just going to go over an, another little topic there that's quite unique um, to our operation, and that is um, how we keep pilots checked and trained and, and whatnot. So uh, the Mallard, it falls into the category which um, would generally need a simulator for, for training, is that correct? Absolutely, yes. Uh, typically an aircraft the same as the, the Mallard, Uh, If it was produced today, it would have manufacturer's support there from a simulator. There would be no training done in the actual airplane itself. You'd be going off to a full motion simulator facility and all your training would be done there in a simulator. Unfortunately, with a 1947 vintage uh, aircraft, that just does not exist. So we're in the very, very awkward position of being an aircraft that under current regulations should require simulator work but unfortunately there just isn't such a beast in the world so we have to do everything ourselves there in the aircraft yeah which has its positives and negatives obviously there's some things in a simulator you can't you know get that real life feel but then things like v1 cuts and um, other real life emergencies that pilots would really love to practice thoroughly we have to kind of go through in a in more of a talk manner through the aircraft rather than acting it out 
uh, in real life, say, in, in the simulator. Yes, unfortunately, it is, it is an aspect of the training that we, we miss out on that. So we've got to uh, have a very robust training system here within the company that allows us to um, get the training done to that equivalent standard that we would expect if we were able to use a simulator. And you know, that being said, we do, we do use a third-party simulator for when we send pilots for the upgrade to get their airline transport pilot's licence. That's all done there on a, on a simulator there uh, with, a, with another company. But unfortunately, all the training that we have to do, we've got to do it ourselves and we've really got to make a big effort to make sure our training is up to that required standard. Uh, tell the listeners a little bit about what the process is for a, a line pilot to remain current uh, with all the company checks when they're flying at Paspaley on the Mallard. Well, the, the, the basic structure that we've got is we've got six monthly proficiency checks here in the, in the company. Um, and we alternate those proficiency checks with, a, with an instrument proficiency check, which uh, is the CASA-mandated check. So... That is the, the check that we go through all our instrument flying procedures and we do that as a, an annual instrument proficiency check and that also counts as a company operational proficiency check. Then after six months has passed, we then do just the, the company operational proficiency check, which is again all the items that you cover there in that instrument rating, but then we also have a look at our water operations there as well, as that's not something that's that's covered by the uh, the instrument proficiency. So we, we go out and we, we do a, a full flight check there on the aircraft, and then we go down onto the water and we spend about an hour there on the water having a look at uh, all the different manoeuvres that we conduct on the water and um, looking at emergency procedures in relation to those water operations there as well. And in addition, we, uh, we have our annual night proficiency check there as well, where we just uh, ensure that everybody is proficient in night circuits and night flying operations. Yeah, it is crazy to keep on top of all these checks and, and everything, but... Obviously, safety is the, uh, the positive outcome from being able to go out there and take the plane out and get recurrent on all of these things, especially with the water work. I mean, to be able to get that airplane out and, and really put it through its paces is uh, very helpful as a flight crew. Absolutely. So and there's, there's not just the, the checking that goes on there. We also have the, uh, the ability just to take the aircraft up and run on training flights as people are feeling that they are starting to get a little bit rusty. They're not quite happy with the way they do their stall-to-step water landings. So the, the company has given us the authorization to go up and just, just do recurrency training flights as we feel fit. So as, as the crew members feel that they need a bit of additional flying, then we can take them up and uh, we can do that additional flying over and above what's required there for the test flights and check flights. Yeah, I know that I've got some mates over at other companies where they say that uh, big C, little t, as in, you know, lots of checking and hardly any training. The ratio at uh, Paspale is really good. Is You know, you do have that option. If you're not feeling very comfortable um, about how your water work is, you can speak up and yourself or someone else will come out and take you out to the training area and, and do water work until you feel comfortable back in that aeroplane. Absolutely. I mean, we're, we are well aware of the amount of work that's got to go in to keeping yourself current and confident there with the aircraft. So um, 
as most of the companies work, is in-house work running to the pearl farms. We don't have the absolute commercial pressures on operations that a lot of other operators have. So the company is more concerned with the job being done correctly and safely than it is with making an extra 50 cents on each hour worth of flying on the aircraft. So because of that mentality, we are able to keep our training up to a very high standard. Well, mate, it's been great uh, diving in deep to the world of mallards uh, with you tonight. And um, I'm really excited to get this out. Episode number one of On The Step uh, podcast, all about float planes and flying boats. But this, uh, the first episode dedicated to the mallard. Thanks very much for joining me tonight, Andrew, and, and talking to all of the listeners out there in depth about the Mallard and, and how much of a, an amazing aeroplane it is. And yeah, really look forward to getting this out and um, having some good feedback from everyone, hopefully. Right. Well, th- thank you very much, Dan. It, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to be able to share the, the thrill of what it is that we do and just the, uh, the absolute pleasure that we've got in being able to be operating these fantastic aircraft now and into the future. It's, it's really great to be able to do that. It certainly is, and it's great to be able to share it to those people out there yep. who uh, may, may not be able to see this kind of stuff. Absolutely. It's a, it's a fantastic throwback, back to the tales of the gold monkey. This is the like, dream job that anybody that's ever got their, their feet wet in airplanes like, really look, looks at and thinks that uh, you know, we, we've got the best of all possible worlds here. All right, mate. Well, once again, thanks very much for coming on the show, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks very much, Dan. We'll see you later. And that's the show for today, folks. I hope you loved diving deep into everything Mallards just as much as I do. Now, don't forget to leave a review if you like that podcast and get in touch uh, if you want to be featured on Seaplane Spotlight or if you've got any other questions or you've got someone you really think would be great to get onto this show. Now, before we go, here is a highlight of episode two of On The Step. Good God, I'm one of those pilots. I'm, I'm now one of these people. They're going to end up on one of these magazines. This is a really bad situation. I can't see anything around me. I have no artificial horizon. I know that there's terrain pretty close to me because I'm not that high. I've only got one option. I've got to go up. And that was in a float plane. The next episode's going to be a ripper. But for now, it's thanks for coming on The Step.